This is part two of the greatness of Torah. <clears throat> but what I think I'll also do is speak a little about, since the, in, in the two, two, three days, you have the elections in Israel. So I think I'll also make some observations about that. I'm sure everybody's curious, you know, what's happening with that what will happen and so on you know what it, the real thing is what's the meaning of all this and so on you know which uh, I think I will also talk about you know so this is sort of like a dual topic <clears throat> um, uh, in part one I had spoken about the greatness of Torah everybody hear me okay uh, I spoke about the greatness of Torah <clears throat> And what I try to uh, illustrate, illuminate, is um, the fact that Torah itself is not just a document, but it is a document that is a fabric of the Bria, of the entire creation. <clears throat> and I wanted to very extensively uh, last time how a document can contain all materials, everything that you will have to know really everything that was created because as I said then the Torah itself is the blueprint that God looked into so to speak to create the world of course God doesn't have to look into anything the blueprint that which God wants of course is uh, preformed in his mind and the Torah is a manifestation of what he wants so in a certain sense it's speaking in the language of man man looks into something right but the question is well, how did that something come into being? That's also the product of the mind and so on, you know. But in any case, <clears throat> we see that. And what's very important to understand is that the Torah, as I would mentioned, is really the totality of the acts of God. It's really what it is, and, you know. So as such, <clears throat> as such, um, the, all the different forces, configurations of forces, and I mentioned that there are, are ten of them, um, all of them that God did in creating the entire creation <clears throat> and I'm not just talking obviously about the physical universe which is 13.7 billion light years a light year being 6 trillion miles uh, but uh, the entire creation itself is far vaster than just the physical universe obviously you know because you're talking about all the spiritual dimensions the worlds before uh, that comprise that are comprised of uh, the uh, the uh, the physical, and then uh, as I mentioned, there are many worlds besides the physical, <clears throat> and of course, um, so all of this is included in the Torah itself in terms of the letters I mentioned in terms of the uh, Rosh Tevis, which is the acrostics, how it's read, skip skip uh, <coughs> uh, skip codes, and all that. All of it, in some way, contains everything. Uh, as I mentioned in Perkyovus, it says, turn it this way, turn it that way, because everything is in it. <coughs> you see, that is why, obviously, <coughs> um, the Jews have always learned the Torah. 
So the Torah is far more than just a law book, which it is. You know, fundamentally, it's a law book in the sense that what is a proper behavior uh, that one must uh, perform, and so on. <clears throat> but it's really a book which I would call, it's an ontological book. It's a book about the being of creation, all of it. So it's far more, it's far greater than we can imagine. You know, it's not just a guidebook, how do you behave? It's really a book that has everything that exists, and so on. Not only exists, but everything that will exist, in the sense that will happen. So it's got the past, the present, the future, uh, <clears throat> and so on. And that's obviously why um, the, the rabbis and the Jews have been learning it for thousands of years, because everything is basically in it, and so on. <clears throat> in any case, <clears throat> So we see that the Torah has many, many different ideas uh, in terms of why it's so great. What I want to dwell on now is another aspect, another dimension <coughs> of the greatness of Torah, which really in many ways is the, the, the defining power or status of the Torah. And I want to introduce that dimension also. <coughs> and that is the following. Uh, we know, and I mentioned this many times, that what God did is He created a universe or a dimension uh, which is completely spiritual. <clears throat> we have no idea what that is. It's called the future world, Olam Habo. In Kabbalah it's called Adam Kadmoin, primordial man. That's the name of that place or that dimension. <clears throat> and what that is, that is Olam Habo. That is the future world. That's where we, hopefully, all of us are headed, right? That's where we want to wind up. Uh, if, you know, if I had to succinctly summarize the experience in that place, I would say it's that it's infinite bliss eternally. It's a nice way of summing up the whole experience, you know. Uh, and as the bliss, the uh, state of which a person has is infinite. We cannot even begin to imagine what that is. And it's eternal. Chazal have an interesting way of referring to that, you know, <coughs> which is interesting. They say, Yom It will be a day that all of it is good. You see, they don't refer to the fact that, well, how good will it be? No, no. Uh, you know, if you ask somebody, what would you rather have? You know, good mixed with bad, but the good would be great. Or would you rather have good that never ends? Means it's never bad. You know what I'm saying? Uh, which one would you prefer? It's an interesting <coughs> question, you know? If you think about it, I think everybody would like, I don't want any bad moments. That's more important than that there should be bad moments and, right, besides the bad moments, uh, there's a lot of great good, you know? No. And that's the way Chazal, the rabbis, refer to Olam Habo. Yoim Adei Shekulei Toiv. All of it is good. It just never stops being good which is really very difficult to comprehend because, you know, you wake up in the morning and who knows what's going to be the rest of the day, you know. Uh, you know, people get up in the morning and by 10 o'clock a.m. they're dead. That's obviously the worst thing that can happen to you, you know, <clears throat> uh, and so on. But uh, that, that's really essential. The, it, there's no such thing as a nanosecond uh, that there is a cessation of unbelievable bliss. Wow, what a place. Imagine what that is? You can't, right? You can't imagine. But that's what Oyelim Hapo is. Uh, you see, 
which is a, a very important idea. So, Ilam Habas first, and then what God does is He creates many dimensions, but the way He does that is that He diminishes the powers, the power, the energies that He produces. Now, <clears throat> um, I had mentioned before, which is very important to know, that God sends forth or issues energies, divine energies, of which we have no idea what that is. And so on. They're called spheres. And there are ten of them. And each one is an incredible force. And these forces create realities. That's what they are. Uh, they are associated with the divine. You see? <clears throat> In other words, nobody really knows what they are. I'm talking about the highest angels have no idea what these forces are. And they are in the camp or the arena, what's called divine. So how in the world can anybody comprehend that which is called divine? But remember, the spheres are not God. God is distinct and separate from anything else, including his energies. Now, without going into the relationship between God and his spheres, which itself is a whole discussion, uh, that's important to keep in mind, okay? But the highest thing that God made, of course, is, uh, or the highest type of being, entity, are those forces. And they create realities. <clears throat> and what they do is they create realities and then they diminish in their output, you see, until finally they create the physical world. And I once mentioned uh, quite a while ago, that the physical world is a barrier to experiencing the spiritual. And that's why it's physical. The essential idea of the physical world is that, like I said, it is a barrier. Okay, it's an obstacle to create, to experience a spiritual world. Because God does not want to give us a spiritual world immediately. He wants us to earn it. And this is a fundamental principle of the creation. Nothing is for free. Nothing. You see, <clears throat> without going into why, I once mentioned the ultimate principle, there's a whole sheer on the internet, Namadik Sufa, Bird of Shame, uh, which hopefully does some type of justice to this whole concept and so on. Uh, but the main idea is that we must earn whatever state we will be in that future world. Very important, see? But in order to do that, <clears throat> God clearly has to create a situation in which we cannot experience the spiritual, Right? Or else we would have it right away. We need to earn the spiritual. And therefore, we need to have a barrier, which means that we got to figure this out. You see? And to the extent that we figure out <clears throat> that the real reality is spiritual, to that extent, we will experience that spiritual state. It's called measure for measure. It is called absolute justice. That's the way God created everything. But do not think that uh, God is just making everything tough. He's not. Because there's a great deal of things that he has instituted that enormously assist us in getting to the end. It's a very important concept. God wants us in Oilam Habo, you see, not that he doesn't want us in Oilam Habo and he's put up an obstacle course, not at all. You see, <clears throat> he wants every single Jew and I would say he wants all human beings in the future world. You know, even if it's a non-Jew. There is a difference, obviously, between the future world of a Jew and a non-Jew, because the Jew is the one that will have caused the existence of the future world. Fine. Uh, but anybody can experience something of the future world if he does the right 
correct behaviors, <coughs> and so on. <coughs> so therefore, the physical universe is fundamentally a barrier. That's what it is, and therefore we got to make our way around the barrier to figure out what the true reality is. So if you want, you could think about the physical world, really it creates a fog. We live in a fog, you see, and the physical world, like I said, is a fog because we don't really see the spiritual, you see, <clears throat> and we, we could talk about it, think about it, but we never really experience it, almost. We can experience it in certain ways, which is interesting. God has allowed man to experience the spiritual, even as a physical person, and for instance, one of the ways of experiencing the spiritual is called prophecy. <clears throat> prophecy is an experience where an individual if he knows the rules, the regulations of prophecy, he can actually experience a spiritual state, even when he's physical. <clears throat> you see, there are other ways besides prophecy, of which we no longer have. There's divine inspiration called Ruach HaKodesh. Uh, there are different ways of experiencing, but so God has left open certain avenues, in that sense, certain venues of experiencing spirituality. Uh, even today, by the way, there are ways of experiencing tremendous spiritual states, even today. You see, it's worthwhile getting to know them because it would change the course of your life. One spiritual experience, if you can ever do it, would change your life. Uh, and the spiritual experience that I would talk about is what's called devakus, which means attachment to God. Um, if a person would experience that, then he would realize that everything uh, is really nothing, you know. It's one thing, there used to be a yeshiva in Europe called Slabotka, a famous yeshiva in Europe, you know. And Slabotka, the yeshiva Slabotka, uh, was that type of yeshiva with a, a tremendous amount of, uh, you know, of growth, spiritual growth. It was a real place that was really, as they say, humming with spirituality. Tremendous amount of learning Torah. Unfortunately, not everybody turned out in the right way. Some guys never made it, you know. They learned, and whatever reason, they got turned off, and for whatever reason, they became either modern, or maybe, God forbid, they left Judaism, uh, in the sense of becoming irreligious, and so on. Uh, but they once said something, uh, there's a saying about that, which is very profound. I'll just share that with you. They said, somebody who learned Slabotka, that yeshiva, right? By the way, there is a Slabotka in Bnei Brak. You know, it's a, na it's a namesake of that original yeshiva, which was one of the major yeshivas in Europe. Uh, so they said that somebody who learned Slabotka, it was like, you know, it was such an incredible spiritual experience. The Torah and the Shurim, you know, the lectures and so on, you know? But they said this, it could be that, you know, Ilum Habo, you won't get. Maybe, maybe the guy will leave Judaism, you know, he will sin, and let's say he won't get Oilum Habo. But one thing you can be sure, he may not get Oilum Habo, which is the next world, the future world, but Oilum Haze, this world, he definitely won't get. That's a very profound understanding, you know, because once you've tasted spirituality, okay, you could slacken off, you can get lazy, or you know, whatever, something happens, where you, it, it in some way interferes with your imuna. Fine. So, you won't get Oilam Haba. But when you've experienced that type of spirituality, and that growth and quest, 
and you're into especially the Torah itself, learning it and understanding the depth, the enormous profundity of the Torah. This world, forget about it because there's nothing to compare to that experience. You know, and it's true. It is true because you realize, you know, even if you didn't make the top and so on, you know, uh, you realize that this world is nothing compared to the spiritual experience that a person can get once he's really in it. He learns Torah, does the mitzvahs, you know, he does the he does he has he does midas, character traits, and so on. You know, he does chesed. You know, <clears throat> when you live that type of life, you see. There's nothing that can compare. And then you take a look at the other type of life, the life of the stock market, Hollywood, you know, all you know, the, you know, the corporations and so on, the money and all this kind of glory and fame. You realize it's nothing. It's absolutely nothing, you see. Anyway, that's what they used to say, which I find to be a very profound concept, you see, <clears throat> that um, those who have experienced real spirituality, even if they never really make it, but this world, forget about it, because it doesn't compare to the spiritual experience. Anyway, so therefore, there's a physical universe, but God, remember, the physical universe, like I said, is a barrier, and it's made to be a barrier uh, to the spiritual. Uh, and what God wants is ultimately to remove that barrier, obviously, because as long as you're physical, you're not going to enjoy or experience the spiritual. <clears throat> so obviously, ultimately, he wants to remove the barrier. But what does that mean to remove the barrier? It doesn't mean to uh, all of a sudden take everybody away. No. What God wants to do, and he has the Jewish people doing it, is to change the physical universe into a spiritual domain. It literally changes. It's called a transformation. Uh, where the physical universe actually transforms into a different type of existence. The ones who do that are the Jews. And therefore, that's called zikuch, purify. Uh, and that's the purpose of spirituality. In other words, the way we... You see, and, and that's interesting if you think about the contrast. The difference between Judaism, and this is an essential idea, the difference between Judaism and many other religions, for instance, I give one religion, for instance, Christianity. You see, Christianity believes, and that's why they have monks, monasteries up in the mountains, you know. Why? Uh, because their understanding, in order to become spiritual, you have to push away the physical. You have to push it away, right? You have to dedicate yourself to asceticism, might be an ascetic, you know, and live the monastic life. And to them, of course, not everybody does that, most people don't, but uh, that's the epitome of a spiritual experience. Judaism says, no, of course not. The, what, a, what a person has to do is not remove physicality and go to some mountaintop and meditate all day long. Uh, the essential journey of Judaism is not that. It is to channel the physical into spirituality, you see. That's why when you look at the mitzvahs, they're all physical, basically, right? Uh, everyone is physical. What you can eat and what you can't eat, you know what I'm saying? Your, your plantations that you have to give a tithe, you know, and then there's the holidays, you know. On the contrary, Jews say, you know, there's a suit of Shabbos, you know what I'm saying? You eat a whole meal on Shabbos, wow, you know. Uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't sound too spiritual, 
When you think about that, you know, especially for those who've tasted chant. <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound so spiritual, although some guys get a real high from that, you know, depending on the chant. But anyway, uh, but the idea is, what Judaism emphasizes is to channel the physical and to make it spiritual. That's the gift of Judaism. See, most religions don't have that. Judaism has. A, a Jew can sit down, right? Looks at the food and makes a bracha, right? He thanks God for the food that he is now about to enjoy. Uh, and the way he thanks him is by acknowledging that the source of the food is God. That's what a blessing is. It's a bracha. We acknowledge that the source of what he's about to partake is God. And therefore, as a result of that, things change. His mind now looks at the food as a vehicle to worship God. It's interesting. Uh, yeah, okay, not a bad idea. Thanks. In any case, that's a very important message. That the task of a Jew isn't to avoid the physical. It is to transform the physical, to channel the physical. Why? Because what the Jew does, right, he just doesn't, God just doesn't take Olam Hazer, the physical world, and, and remove it in that sense, right? It's the physical world itself is transformed into a spiritual domain. So the physical universe becomes the, the, a spiritual universe called Yitzira, which becomes uh, Bria and then Atsilus, and that becomes what's called Adam Kadmoin, which is the future world. That's why a Jew is so involved in the physical world. You notice, all the mitzvahs involve physicality, you see. And that's a big difference between Judaism and other religions. They try to run away from the physical, and the Jew embraces it by channeling the physical and making it spiritual. That's a very important concept and so on. And the reason for that, why, why should that be the avoida, the work? And the reason for that is because you want to take the physical universe and purify it. So obviously, if you avoid the physical universe, you're not doing it. But by interacting with the physical universe, you actually change the physical universe into a spiritual one, because that's exactly what you're doing. That explains why Judaism is a very physical religion. Sounds very interesting, but it is. It's a very physical religion. And now, once that happens, of course, now how do you make physical into spiritual? And the answer is you got to turn on these spheres. You got to get them to pour out much more divine energy. That's what happens. And initially they were diminished, and now they are now turned on again, right? And as a result of that, the, uh, the physical universe now changes. Because remember, if they increase their output of the incredible divine energy, right? Then I guarantee you something's going to happen to the matter that they deal with. And that's what the Jew does. Now, of all these ten spheres, which is very important, okay, there are ten of them. But the greatest of all the spheres, which means it has the greatest amount of energy, A, and B, it is the greatest revelation of God. Because a sphere, other than being a force, is also a revelation of God. It is some type of an insight into God, you see. It is associated with the aspects of God that can be revealed. 
you see. <clears throat> so therefore, the, the spheres change reality, but the reality that they change is in conformity to the illumination that they provide you, right, of the divine presence. It's really what it is. Each sphere can provide you with an unbelievable insight into God, right, and therefore that's what they can change. That's why the spheres, when they are their energies increase, that's why they make the world into a spiritual domain. You see, because they are spiritual, they have in them the capacity to illuminate the presence of God to an incredible degree, so therefore they change reality that way. You see, makes sense. It's exactly what they do. You see, uh, so therefore, what we want to do when we do the mitzvahs, that's the trigger. The mitzvah is a trigger. I once mentioned that there are three triggering devices. One is mitzvahs, commandments, tshuva, repentance, and the other one, of course, is yisurin or suffering. They're all what's called tikkun devices, right? Because they do the tikkun, and the, that's what the tikkun is. The tikkun is called zikuch. It's to bring God back by retransforming the physical universe into a spiritual, you see. <clears throat> now, of all the spheres, the greatest of all of them not only is it the greatest, the most powerful, remember what that means, because it has the greatest illumination of who God is, because that's part of what it is, right? Uh, is the, the sphere called Keser, the crown. Keser, which is the first sphere, is the Sheresh, the root, the origin of all the nine below it. It has the greatest force, power, an illumination of the presence of God and it renders one the greatest insight into who God is. That's a very powerful, you know, a very powerful force. There's no way we can comprehend that type of force. So, the question that you can say is, wow, that's great. How do I access that? <clears throat> you know, you know, if I only access the spheres through the mitzvahs, Wow, wouldn't it be incredible to do a mitzvah and access Kesher? Uh, for my benefit, right? That's what you want, right? Uh, and so on. And the answer is, is there a mitzvah that can actually access Kesher? And the answer is, yes. Do you know what that mitzvah is? Talmud Torah, learning Torah. That's why it says Talmud Torah Keneged Kulam, right? To learn the Torah is greater than all the mitzvahs combined. Well, how do you, why? How do you pull that off? Because when you learn Torah, what God has done is an unbelievable chesed. What is that chesed? He has tied the sphere of keser to the mitzvah of learning the Torah. That's it. That's how we access it. So it comes out that when you learn Torah for every second that you learn Torah, you are accessing the sphere of Keser. It's an unbelievable achievement, you see. <clears throat> and, and that's why the Torah stresses Hasmada. Learn Torah diligently means all the time, uh, you know. And because by learning Torah, you are accessing that, which is an astounding concept, you see. This is what happens. And that's why Talmud Torah connected Kulam. Learning the Torah is ways shokel. It balances all other mitzvahs, because Kesser is the greatest sphere. Uh, you know. Now we may ask ourselves, why? 
What's the logic here? I mean, that, we, that's the fact. But, you know, we're always looking for the logic, the rationale, what's called a conceptual explanation or, or a, a connection. What is it? You know? I'll tell you what it is. Because there's this understanding that God, Kutshebrichu, God, Torah, the Torah, and the Jewish people, Chadhu, is really one. Uh, that is a very profound concept, you know, and we have to understand what that means. In a certain way, a good analogy is water, right? Water is water. It's got an H2O molecule, right? Two hydrogen, one oxygen. And that, those two atoms together form a molecule called water. But water has three forms. Water can be in the form of ice, water, or steam. Right? Three forms. Even though it's the same molecule, isn't it? Right? Uh, so that's the concept of there's a difference in form. Same idea. God, the Torah, and the Neshama, the soul, the Jewish people's Neshama, which is called Knesset Israel. That is the aggregate soul of all Jews, because really all of us are connected together, even though we don't see. We think we're spatially disconnected. Yeah, you're over there and I'm over here. What do you have to do with me? That's a tremendous mistake. We're really tremendously connected. We are connected ontologically, being-wise, you know? You know what a great example of that is? There's always a physical example to help picture what in the world I'm talking about. What's a great example that we're really one being called Knesset Israel? And the answer is <coughs> Siamese twins. What's a Siamese twin? Right? It's really two heads, one body. Or it depends how connected they are. You know, if they're really connected in that way, one of them is going to go and the other is going to live, tragically and so on, right? But a Siamese twin is really two beings that are in some way connected. You see? The Jews are Siamese twins. You didn't know you had a twin, right? Uh, right? You all thought, oh, I'm an individual, right? But you don't realize, every Jew that, ever, that was ever created or born, really is connected to every other Jew. We are Siamese twins. But what God did is we don't see that. Because what is connected is not the physical body, it is the neshama itself. All neshamas are one. And there are many things that come out of it as a result. You see, because of the concept of the unity, the absolute unity of the Jew. And by the way, just as an aside, because I don't really want to get into this topic, that's why it says, And you will love your neighbor as yourself. You know what I'm saying? Could you imagine that? How in the world could you love your neighbor as yourself? You know what I'm saying? And it doesn't say, and you will love your wife as yourself, right? Your neighbor, you see? Could you imagine you get up in the morning, get dressed, and you go outside, and you knock on your neighbor's door, neighbor's door, right? The guy opens the door, and you say to him, do you love me? Today that would be completely interpreted in another way, right? Obviously, and so on. <clears throat> but that's really what we have to make a commercial. You will love your neighbor as yourself. So the question is, how in the world can that be? I mean, why would God make or impose that type of relationship? And the answer is because He is you. That's who He is. 
you're looking at something that has a different consciousness, but really, he's you. You and his neshama are bound together as one. You see, that's a very important concept. We don't realize that, you see. And that's why it says, you have to recha, and you will love your neighbor, kamoicha, as yourself. Why? Because kamoicha, he is you. He is you, you see. That's why that mitzvah makes sense. Think about that. Why would that, why would God impose that type of a mitzvah? You know, and so on, you know. Because what's called the being really is one neshama. That neshama is called Knesset Israel. You see, that's the logic of your haftarecha kamoicha, and so on. But anything, and that's why God is so makpid. He's so incredibly demanding, particular, that the Jews must have avas Yisrael. You see, sinas chinam. When a Jew hates another Jew, then there's something that happens to the, to the connection that every Jew has with each other. It is actually possible to tarnish that connection. And that's why Sinah is one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people. You see, and that's why also, when somebody sins, you affect the whole Jewish nation. It's amazing. That's why Kol Yisrael Arabim Zeluzeh. Every Jew is what? Is a guarantor for another Jew. Why? See why? If somebody sins in Alaska, you will be affected. Why? And the answer is, and if somebody does a mitzvah in Alaska, you are also affected. In some way, in some metaphysical way, which we don't see. And the answer is, the question is why? And the answer is, because you and he are bound being wise, ontological. It's an amazing concept. That's why, you know, why God needs the achdus of Klai Yisrael. He needs the unity of the Jewish people, you see. Because they are really one neshama. Very important concept, you see, <clears throat> you know. And that's why, imagine a Siamese twin, right? Is on a rowboat, right? On some lake, right? And all of a sudden, one of the twins, and they have, you know, two bodies, uh, one body, basically, or they have two bodies connected, whatever, right? And they can talk to each other. You can imagine having a permanent companion. And one of them says, you know, I'm depressed. I'm depressed. You know, I'm depressed. I want to commit suicide. So the other, body, the other guy says, excuse me, are you crazy? If you commit suicide, I'm dead. It's suicide for me. Because we are Siamese twins. Ah, uh, you see, <coughs> the same concept with the Jews. We're all Siamese twins. That's a clarification question. Yes. You say that God, Israel, and the Torah are one. We're saying each one of those three things individually are one, or, or simultaneously we're saying all three are one unity. One. It, one means it's the same identity. It's a, it's a, all the Jews are one, and then <clears throat> God and the Jews are talk all together one. Yes, we, and, and that's my next, uh, where I'm going to uh, you know, get to, because first I'm explaining the, the concept of the oneness of the Jew. Okay. Now I have to go back and explain what does it mean that God, the Torah, and the Neshama, which is the Jew, is really one, right? Uh, therefore, <clears throat> Uh, it's in any case, so uh, what each Jew, Jew can affect the lives of every other Jew. That's where it is, and so on, okay. 
<coughs> and uh, ultimately it has uh, a, a tremendous um, um, it's a foundational concept now uh, just like I said there are three forms of the same substance water there's water there's ice and there's steam right uh, God in a certain sense the Torah and the Jew is really the same thing in different forms we don't see that what that really means is that God manifests himself in terms of the divine forces the spheres so we could say that God which is the divine presence and the spheres are one in that sense you know but the neshama is really an expression of the spheres that's really who we are you see we are the spheres really in human form if you want to look at it that way which is very interesting uh, that's why we look the way we do if you ever see the diagram of man in terms of the spheres where you have Kesa, you have Chokhmah, Bina and so on the shape is the shape of a human body you see that's the shape and the reason for that is that and in fact and that is called Odom the shape of the spheres or the configuration of the spheres is called Odom we are in that configuration we look the way they do the head the arms the torso the legs and so on right because we are really a manifestation of the spheres so therefore just like they're called Adam we are also called Adam you see <clears throat> therefore really all three are really one it's a very important concept now if we understand that then we also realize this and that is that well if the spheres which is the Torah which I had mentioned in the last year the totality of all the combinations of spheres that God used to create to make the creation right that is the Torah ultimately I mentioned that last time what the Torah really is at that level and so on right <clears throat> that's the case so if you learn the Torah you are really learning the spheres except in a disguised form but wait a minute if you are learning the Torah which are really the spheres right then if that's the case you are you are really connecting to God because the Torah is in a certain sense a divine form so when you learn it you are incorporating that divine form in you but the greatest form of the divine form is the greatest sphere which is Kesser therefore when you learn Torah you actually trigger Kesser in your favor not a lower sphere but the sphere of Kesser itself and that is the greatest what's called Shefa Hashpor force or influence that is possible in creation that's what Torah does so how do you beat it? you can't that's the greatest mitzvah of all is to sit down and learn Torah you see <clears throat> and that's what happens when you learn Torah you see in any case now each person has been given a place a location or an assignment to rectify that area in creation every Jew has his selected place you see and nobody else can rectify that place which means bring the divine presence into that area that's what it means an assignment each one of us creation has been doled out to every single neshama right therefore each one has an assignment in that area you need to bring the divine presence 
into that area. Nobody replicates another person. This is the problem. So therefore, if you don't do the job, right, you don't rectify that area, which means you don't bring the divine presence in that area, you have to come back. That's why there are Gilgulim, or reincarnations and so on. And you got to come back again and again until you do your job, you see? But rectifying it means what? Doing the mitzvahs. But the greatest mitzvah that you could do is the Torah, right? <clears throat> so what that does is it grabs the force of Keser and rectifies your area. But Keser is so powerful, you see, that it can rectify the entire area, not just piecemeal. Each mitzvah will rectify a certain area of what your assignment is. But Torah can rectify all the areas, the totality of your area. It can't rectify the whole thing, but it can pervade the entire area. Wow! So if you do a mitzvah, it'll rectify one spot, one area, right? But Torah, because it can access keser, which is the root of everything, can access the totality of your area. You see, the more Torah, the greater is the tikkun. Even though it, it can't rectify the area in terms of the total rectification, but it can rectify the entire area that you're assigned to. You're way ahead of the game because of that, you see? That's why the greatest mitzvah you can do is to learn Torah. Because that's what does it, you see? In fact, that is such an important idea, you see, that the Gemara actually asks, wait a minute, women are not commanded to learn Torah. So why do they get the future world? It's in Stalin Gemara and Brochus. It says, If a woman, she's not commanded to learn Torah at all, right? So it can, comes out that a woman can go through her entire life, right? Never learning anything. Uh, you see? So that means she's never accessed Keser. So then how in the world really will she get the future world which really is Keser? See, that's what happens in Oilam Habo. The manifestation of the sphere called Keser completely illuminates all things. Because that's the greatest illumination. That's really what Oyam Habo is. It is the complete illumination of this sphere called Keser. You see? So if a woman has no relationship with the Torah at all, because she's not commanded, how she going to get the future world? That's what the Gemara actually asks. So you know what the Gemara answers? It's interesting. <coughs> the Gemara answers, well, the way they get, the way they can access the Torah, how? Is because they wake up their little kids in the morning and they send them to yeshiva. Yeah. Or they wake up their husband, which means that they throw him out of the bed. Right? And they say, come on, go and learn Torah. So in the merit that they have contributed to the learning of Torah, that's their the way they, they get in. Very interesting concept, you see. <clears throat> but that, in many ways, is how important it is. That's why this chesed, but one of the greatest forms of chesed is to give to an institution that teaches Torah. Because by contributing to it, you are accessing keser. Interesting, you see? So there are differences even in chesed. You see, if you invite somebody, hachnas right? to your home, right, on Shabbos, a real Shabbos meal and so on, right, 
That's great. You see? But to contribute to a yeshiva where Torah will now be learned more, obviously, the rabbis can be paid, they can teach the Talmidim, and so on. Because the yeshiva has tremendous amount of needs, right? And you need money for that, right? That is probably one of the greatest forms of chesed and mitzvah that you can do. Because that links you with the Torah. You see, just like the woman, what links them is they contribute by getting their husbands to learn, getting their kids into the yeshiva, and so on. You see? Anyway, that's a, a very interesting practical outcome. Now, Torah is so great, how do you access that? Do you have to learn the Torah? Well, I'll tell you something interesting. In the bracha of Limina Torah, it says, La soik bedivrei Torah. We say a blessing in the morning. La soik means to engage in, right? La soik bedid, to engage in the words of the Torah. Why doesn't it say lil moid, to learn the Torah? It says la soik, to be oisik, to engage in it, to be occupied with it. Why does it say that? Because what's very interesting, <clears throat> let's say a guy's learning Torah, and he gets tired. You know, you got to rest, right? It's a lot of mental thinking, right? And all of a sudden you sit down for a minute and you relax. Close your eyes just to relax. You are getting the reward of Torah just by resting. Even if you don't learn. In other words, if resting is in order for you to get back to learning, right? Then the resting is considered as if you are... The resting is considered as if you are learning. It's an amazing concept, you know? Hopefully, guys are not going to use that as an excuse, you know? While they're all taking coffee breaks, you know what I'm saying? Well, I'm learning Torah, right? So, you know, guys drink coffee for half the day, you know? Hopefully that doesn't happen, you know? <clears throat> but in any case, so therefore, Torah is so great that even if you rest for the purposes of strengthening yourself and just taking it easy, that's considered learning Torah, and you access Keser. It's amazing. Drinking coffee can get you to access Kesa. You see? Now, also, looking at the letters of the Torah. You see? Uh, when I get an Aliyah, right? So, you know, you read, you look at the Torah, and you make the blessing, the brach and so on, right? You know? And then you stand aside. Right? And then the other guy, next guy, comes up and makes the bracha. I always make sure that I stand next to the guy getting the bracha, so I can look in while he's looking in. Because looking at the letters of the Torah is like learning the Torah. It's also accessing Keser. Why not? You see? It's an interesting concept. And that's why Hagbo, when they lift the Torah, look at the letters. Because if you look at the letters, that is also accessing Keser. Interesting. In other words, what we begin to see is that to experience Torah at any level, or for any reason, right, can access that type of a sphere. <clears throat> now, if you read the Torah, you pronounce the word, that also is like learning, not as, you know, but it's, it's a form of learning, is if you pronounce the word. Certainly, if you learn Torah and you think about Torah, means you're trying to figure out what the pshat is, what the meaning is, and so on and so forth, that is also a tremendous access. In fact, the more you think about the Torah, the greater is the access. That's why learning Be'iyun is a tremendous reward. Be'iyun means with depth. 
is a tremendous reward. In fact, the greater the clarity of your understanding of Torah, the greater is the access, you see, toward Kesa. The more you understand it, and the greater the clarity. Uh, it's also part of the actual concept of learning the Torah itself, you see. So that's part of the, uh, the, the level uh, of learning the Torah itself. Obviously, the more you learn, the better you're off. You know, the guys that learn one hour a day, some guys learn three hours a day, and so on. So the, the, the constancy of learning Torah, obviously, is much greater than if you learn in a, a, you know, just for a very short amount of time. What's also interesting, <clears throat> which people not necessarily recognize, it says, from tsaro agro, according to the tsar, the pain is the agro, the reward. Amelus. The more your omel in learning Torah, omel means the effort. The greater the effort, the greater the, 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 uh, the access that you have in terms of learning. Very important idea. Amelus is a very important component of doing a mitzvah. Especially when you're learning Torah. Amelus is key. You see, so learning Torah is not just learning the Torah. It's also how much effort are you putting in to learn the Torah. And when I mean effort, I don't necessarily mean only the Amelus, right? Of the actual learning itself. What did you give up? To learn the Torah. Uh, you see, the guy says to himself, listen, you know, <clears throat> I'd love to have more money. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get another job. Right? But what happens if he says, I don't want another job. I want to learn the Torah. And I'm going to give up what I could have earned on that second job. You see, that is considered a malus. That's considered Tremendous self-sacrifice. So the greater the self-sacrifice to learn the Torah, the greater is the reward, which means the greater is the access to Kesser. It's all included. It's interesting, you see. It's not just only learning the text. It's also the effort applied and the self-sacrifice that what do you give up in order to learn Torah. It's all part of the formula of how you access, you see. And then, of course, the last thing I would say is the kavona, the intent. If you learn the Torah to show off, I'm going to show my chavrusa, how brilliant I am, right? You know, that's not good. The motive or the intent is not good. But if your kavona is, well, I want to understand clearly, you know, because the Torah is the vehicle, the document of God, and the greater I understand the Torah, the greater I will understand Him, right? what he wants, who he is, what he requires. That intent is tremendous. You see? So when you think about that, all of it counts. You see, it's not just learning the Torah, which is the greatest, because you can access Kesar. It's all these components that are involved, uh, you see, <clears throat> and so on, you know. But remember, there's sometimes a person says, listen, you know, I would love to learn. But I can't because I have to go to work, right? And it bothers him. He has suffering from it. Yisurin. I'd love to learn. Believe it or not, that suffering is learning Torah. Because you are pained by the fact that you're not learning. 
Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And if you're pained by not learning Torah, then that is considered learning Torah. Because the pain is the result of not learning. It's, it's, when you think about it, there's so many different ways that you can hook in to learning Torah and therefore have access to Kesar, which is the greatest of all the spheres. You see? And I've listed a whole number of them that is possible uh, to, uh, to, to, to do, and so on, you know. Um, how much Torah really is there? You think about it. How much really is there? I'll give you a story that in some way tells us what's out there in terms of Torah. The Ari, Rabbi Yitzchak Luria, okay, the great Ari, and so on, one of the greatest Mikubolim, who was pivotal, he was actually in the transmission process of Kabbalah, and so on. You know, he was once learning with somebody, a student of his, you see, and it was on Shabbos afternoon, and all of a sudden the Ari closed his eyes, and he was started mumbling. So the student listened, you know, he heard a mumbling, so he figured the Ari probably fell asleep. Fell asleep in the middle of the learning, because he's obviously very tired. Um, but he said to himself, hmm, you know, was he doing talking in his sleep, right? The Ari was mumbling, so he said, I he, so he put his ear next to the amount of the Ari to hear what the mumbling was. You know? Apparently even the mumblings of the Ari are greater than the open discussion of the average guy, obviously, you know. Anyway, he put his ear to the Ari. This story is brought down by Rabchaim Batal, the great student of the Ari. Uh, and all of a sudden the Ari woke up. Uh-oh, no good. He woke up the Ari. So he obviously was, uh, you know, disturbed. In a certain sense, you know, a little afraid, you know. So the Ari looked at him and he noticed. He said, no, it's okay, don't worry about it. You know, it's fine, don't worry. You know, let's continue learning. Well, once the Ari was okay with that, he figured he has enough courage, he's going to ask the Ari, what were you mumbling about? Right? It's called, he got, you know, he got his courage back, so to speak, you know? So he asked the Ari, what were you mumbling about? You know, was that mumbling part of sleep? Or was something going on there? Because with the Ari, nothing is obvious. There's always something going on with the Ari. And we're not talking about a, no, a normal guy in that sense. Uh, you know, so the Ari said, I'll tell you, I didn't fall asleep. What I did is I uttered, or I was Mechaven, Hashem, a divine name, and my consciousness ascended the Maila up to Olim Yitzira. That's what he says. Now, once, I, I, once my consciousness ascended to that world, which is the world right above us, and that's the basic residence of the angels, an angel came over to me, a malach. You know, I'm here, but my consciousness is there. You know, it's almost like somebody opened up a, a window for me to look into. So the malach said to him, no, you, know, you know, what would you like to do? You know, there's, uh, so the Ari said, well, what's going on here, you know? So the Malach said, there's a lot of shiurim going on. Lectures in Torah going on, right? So the, the Ari asked him, um, really? Who's lecturing on what topic, you know? He says, well, you know, Rabbi Shimon is talking about that, and Rabbi Akiva, you know? 
I, I think I think he said in Rab Shimon he's talking about Parshas Bolok. Parshas Bolok. So the Ari said, hmm, sounds interesting. Let me go to that Shia. So the Malach took him, or rather he took the consciousness of the Ari, and he brought him to Parshas Bolok. You know, the Rab Shimon, I think it was Rab Shimon by Yechoi. Either that or Rabbi Akiva, one of the two, right? Uh, and he was there. So the Ari tells the student, what I was mumbling, I was mumbling over what I heard uh, in the Shia. So like the, the student was a flabbergasted. So it's incredible. It means you were listening to Torah in heaven. So he asked the Ari, says, tell me some of the Torah. What does it sound like? You know what I'm saying? You know, what is it? What is the nature of Torah that's in heaven? You know? See, the Ari says, listen, I'd love to tell you, but if I had 80 years and I had ink enough to write for 80 years, I could not tell you what that man said. That's how much information was coming out in that, uh, that, that, that point, you know? Uh, that's what he told his students. I can't tell you. How can I tell you 80 years worth of stuff that I heard in the 15, 10, 10, 15 minutes that I was listening? What does that tell us? Says, wait a minute, think about this. I mean, Pasha's Pollock, right? Okay, it's a Pasha in the Torah, <coughs> right? But how much is there in Pasha's Pollock, right? If you sat down and rewrote every commentary ever written on Pasha's Pollock, well, how long would it take you? Two months. Three months, four months, a year, and that's it. You know what I'm saying? There's a finite amount. What in the world in Pasha's Polo could take 80 years? That's the question that you have to ask. What in the world is there in Pasha's Polo that would take 80 years to write? Do you believe this? And the answer is, that's what we're missing. We don't realize we have a small little part of the Torah. It's almost like, uh, you know, uh, you know, to compare it, it's like a racist das. You know, your little kid, five years old, learns a racist das. O a e bo ba be. You know, the, the, the alphabet, you know. So that's basically what we have. We have what's called the, just the beginnings, the alphabet. But the real stuff, you know. Now we think, wait a minute, what are you talking about? We have Bavli, Yushami. Come on, we have Bavli. You know what Bavli is? Babylonian Talmud? Yushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud. And then we have Shadis and Chuvas. We have the Rishonim, the Achreinim, the Goinim. I mean, come on, right? It's incredible what we have, right? So what do you mean we have a little smattering of the Torah? And here's what the Medrash says, which is really incredible when you think about that. There's a Medrash... That, as is, that is at the end of Kohelas. It's a Medrash Rabbah at the end of Kohelas. And here's what it says. <clears throat> it says that the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, all of it, that's a lot of stuff, right? Over the years, hundreds of thousands of volumes have been written, right? You walk into a Jewish bookstore, right? There are thousands of volumes, you know? There's a place called, there's a thing called, it's a, it's a uh, hard drive, you know, it's got a hundred thousand volumes already, right? A hundred thousand volumes in a hard drive, you know? It's astounding, you can buy it, you know? And so on, <clears throat> you know? So that's an enormous amount of Torah, and that's not even be. and there's so much more that has been published 
over the thousands of years, right? The 3,300 years since Moshe Rabbeinu, right? It's a lot of stuff, right? And it's not just a lot of stuff, it is very sophisticated and it's very profound, you know? We're talking about all the responsa, shalas and shuvas from. It's very tough stuff, right? So here's what the Mendra says. The Mendra says that all the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu is hevel, luft, air, compared to the Torah of the Mashiach. You know what that means? It's an astounding statement. It means that the, all the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, what I'm talking about, the hundreds of thousands of volumes that were printed, published, printed and written, right? Over the thousands of years, is air, it's this. It's not even a substance compared to the Torah that the Mashiach is going to bring when he comes, which is going to be in our time, correct? That's unbelievable. Do you believe what this means? That means that Noilim Hazer, right? Hopefully very shortly, there's going to be a man that's going to reveal this type of material that almost infinitely overpowers the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu. You see? And then the Medrash says that the Torah of the Mashiach is luft, is air, compared to the Torah of Ilm Habo. Think about what that means. Well, how do we even grasp, comprehend that type of understanding? You mean this is really what the Torah is? You know? We don't even, we have no comprehension of what the Mashiach is going to reveal. Let alone the Torah of Ilm Habo, which is infinite. You see, so then you begin to understand, well, when the Ari went up there and he heard 80 years worth, you know, big deal. Compared to the Torah of Oilam Habo, big deal. Because that's not Oilam Habo. The Oilam Yitzhira he went is not the future world. That's all the way up, Adam Kadmon, primordial man. We don't even, we have no comprehension of what God will reveal at that point in time. You see, that's why, probably why Oilam Habo is infinite. It's everlasting. It has to be everlasting. That's how long it's going to take you an eternity to learn this stuff. You see? And, and so on. But from here we learn what the vastness of Torah is, which makes sense. Because what you have to understand is the concept of a creation. You see? A creation is not if you, have a, if you walk into a medical library, there are thousands and thousands of textbooks in a medical library, right? You go into an engineering library, physics, chemistry, all the chokhmas, right? Thousands of volumes. No man can go through medicine in, today. That's gone. They say the last time a guy could master all human knowledge, right, was about 800 years ago. I think it was 1250, you know? Then it was possible for one man to master all human knowledge. Today, you know, you're lucky if you can master a specialty of a specialty of a specialty. You're lucky, you know, and so on, you see. And this is just one field called medicine. There are thousands of fields, you see. It's, it's astounding how much chokhmah there is. That's a creation. When, 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 when we talk about a creation, I'm not talking about a field of chokhmah, of wisdom. What I'm saying is, 
It's a totality of everything that exists. You see? And God made a creation. Not medicine only. You see? So you think about, wait a minute, how much information is in a creation? You see? And the answer is, it's almost infinite. In fact, there is a dimension of creation, right? Which we are not privy to, as I always said. Because the Mashiach, his information, whatever that is, right, is part of creation, isn't it? Right? Yet we have no concept of what it is. And the, the information that's contained in Ilam Habo, right, is infinite. But wait a minute, but it's really part of the creation, isn't it? You see? So when you think about that, forget about thinking about the information on this planet. There's information of the physical world, there's information of the messianic era, which is the incorporation of the spiritual information, right? And then there's the information of the future world, of which we have no comprehension whatsoever what it is. You see, this is called a creation. It is the totality of everything that God did. You see, and that really in many ways awaits us. You see, and this ultimately is going to happen. And that is why in many ways I believe, okay, that um, it's going to happen soon. It's not going to happen. <clears throat> imagine, imagine if in 1953, right, you go to, um, in, uh, not Indonesia, um, New Guinea. New Guinea, that's it. Imagine you went to New Guinea in 1953. I don't know if these guys ever even saw a white man then, you know? And you sat down with this New Guinean, right, who can barely count past five, or whatever that, right? And you opened up a textbook in electrical engineering, right? And you started telling this guy, you know, what electricity, you know? You open these, this guy, look at you, you're out of, you're out of your mind. He couldn't comprehend the Chokhmah because he is so far away from that Chokhmah. You know, he's, he's got to have what's called a bridge to get to your, to get to your beginning level. It's called, the, uh, you know, Engineering 101. He's, he, you know, he's not even in 101. He's in what's called the first grade. How can you take a guy who's at the level of first grade, yes, and give him information that's graduate engineering? It's impossible. There's no way, because there's no bridge. You see? This is the problem. The Mashiach is going to come, right? And he's going to pour out this information which makes the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu hevel, air. Right? It's like the, you sitting down with this guy in New Guinea and opening up a graduate physics book. It's impossible. You see? You, you and him are not in the same dimension. So therefore, what must happen? The question then is, so how are you going to explain or understand the Mashiach? His level of information is millions and millions of times greater than you. Uh, you know? So if the Mashiach is going to come now, right, whenever he comes, and he's going to give you his information, you can't grasp that. You don't have a connection. There's no bridge there. You look at the man and say, I don't know what you're talking about. Makes sense. You see? 
So he's going to look at you and say, excuse me, you make sense. Because to him it's obvious. So we have a tremendous dilemma, a real problem. What is the problem? You cannot send a Mashiach. See, people don't understand. A Mashiach isn't somebody who's going to release us from political suffering. You know, you know the persecutions and all that. We're not talking about political independence here. All right? The Mashiach has one job. To reveal reality, totality. That's his job. You see? And that totality of reality... <coughs> <coughs> is so far beyond us that's his job you see he has to take away the fog that we're in you see he's a guy that's going to come to a guy that lived in 1850 BCE right and he's going to bring him the latest science of 2019 you believe this it's a joke Guy lives in 1815 BCE, right? What, what in the world does a guy know? You know what I'm saying? They don't even have toilet paper then. What do they have? You know, although it's interesting they were sophisticated. They have built pyramids and all that, you know? Uh, so the, then the question is, how can God send a Mashiach if nobody can even grasp anything of what he says? Because there's no alphabet here, you see? So the answer must be that God in some way will create a miracle and bring the Jews back to their Torah. You see? Or else the Mashiach basically will have come for nothing. What's the point? You know? <clears throat> you can't, uh, Albert Einstein cannot come into the first grade and begin explaining his theory of relativity that even graduate physics people don't really comprehend. You see? Obviously, something has to happen. That's why you should know what's going to happen is God is going to bring the people back. You know? <clears throat> He's going to bring the people back. He's going to bring the people back to their Torah because that's where it's at. If He doesn't, then there's no way you can connect really to the Mashiach. Not in a physical way. And really, in many ways, it will be a physical connection. <coughs> this week was Parshish Kiseitze, or I should say last week. In the Haftorah of Parshish Kiseitze, there's a very interesting posture. It says the following: The rega cotton azaftich. For one small second, I will abandon you. That's the gollus. Uberachmem gedolim, but with in great mercy, akapseich, I will gather you. It's an interesting posuk. What does that mean? <clears throat> there are many ideas in that posuk. Okay, is that the geula comes because of incredible rachmanus? which means God helps the Jews come to the redemption. But what's interesting, it says, I will gather you. What do you mean, I will gather you? In other words, I will take you back to me. Going back to God doesn't mean high. Going back to God means mastery of the Torah. That's what it means. 
Because without the Torah, really, where are you at? You see? But the interesting thing is, who is going to bring the Jews back? It says, it doesn't say that the, uh, in great compassion you will be gathered. It says, I will gather you. I. What's called Bechvoidi Ubi Atzmei. That means God will come down, and whatever that means, okay, He will take the Jewish people back. Not the Mashiach. Because it says, I will gather you. It doesn't say, you will be gathered. Because that would have implied a Mashiach. Yeah, you'll be gathered by the Messiah. No. I will gather you. Remember when that happened? In Egypt. You read the Agoda in Pesach, right? It says, God says, I will take the Jews out of Egypt. Not an angel, right? No form of being can take them out. I myself will take them out. Why is that? Because the Jewish people are the children of God. Okay? And they have been exiled from his palace for thousands of years. When a king wants to bring back his child, do you think he sends a messenger? No. He goes himself to where the child is and he dresses the child. Because how can he bring that child back into the palace? Everybody's going to take a look at that kid, right? Who's all, he's dirty, he's filthy, poor clothing, right? That is an incredible busha, embarrassment to the king, you see? So two things. One, he's going, he himself will go back because that is the display of the love that God has for the Jewish people, right? He won't, he's not going to give this assignment to somebody else. He's going to do it, one. And number two, that he will dress the child. He will put him on royal clothing before he brings him back to the palace. Because it is one of the greatest busha embarrassments to a king to bring his kid back when that kid looks like a loser. You know, terrible clothing. Why would a person do that to his own child and, and expose his kid to the other people of the palace what this kid looks like father doesn't do that to a child you see <clears throat> and that in many ways is what's going to happen you see that the Muslim himself will come back he himself not an angel he's going to do it himself one and he's going to raise the Jewish people to the level that they can connect to the Mashiach he's going to give them what's called the Sprach He's going to give them the language in order to be able to enjoy and access this messianic figure. And that's what's going to happen. You see, and you should know, that's going to be one of the greatest of all the miracles. Because we cannot imagine that. But remember, we're not talking here about a redemption. We're talking about the final redemption. That's a whole different series. That's a whole different uh, it's what's called a, a qualitative distinction. <clears throat> We're not looking what's called a salvation. We're talking about the end of time. The final redemption. The final redemption will be much greater than Egypt. Right? God wiped out the Egyptians. He wiped out the Egyptians. And then he took them out of Egypt. And then what did he do? He brought them... He gave them 49 days. What did he do in those 49 days? We don't know. But we know that on the seventh day, in Kriyas Yamsuf, 
the splitting of the sea, that a maidservant saw more of the divine light than Yecheskel Hanovi saw. And the basis of all Kabbalah is in the divine chariot of Ezekiel the prophet. Can you imagine what they saw? We don't know. Uh, but he had to do that. Why? Because if he doesn't raise the Jewish people from their state of Golas slavery, how can they possibly receive the Lucas? Right? There's no connection. It's the same problem as the Mashiach. Uh, uh, there's no connection here. You see? That's what he will do now. In order for the Jewish people to connect to God, right? He's got to raise them. And the forerunner, the forerunner model of this is Egypt. That's exactly what he did in Egypt. He raised the Jews, not just physically liberated them, but he had to raise them spiritually. He had to give them the what? The olive base, the connection to what he was about to reveal to them on Mount Sinai. Right? Without that, forget it. It doesn't work. And therefore it says, He may go out the Eschem Achos gracious. Behold, right? I will redeem you. The latter final redemption, like the former. So just like, if you look at the former redemption, that is a model for the Geula itself. Uh, so just like the Bershom had to do what? He had to bring the Jewish people back, right? To connect to that level of spirituality and Torah that he was going to reveal on Mount Sinai took 49 days, which itself is beyond belief. But it was the Rebunashim that did it. You see, and we don't even know what they experienced in those 49 days. That will happen now. As soon as the redemption begins, the final, and it begins at a certain point, the Bonisham is going to be mindful that he himself will go out and gather his kids, as it says in Devarim. Even if your exiles are at the ends of heaven, here's what it says, right? From there I will gather you. Right? That, that, what is that? Uh, that's pre-Messianic. Even if the Jews are all over the place, in the exile, all over, God will gather. Not that you will be gathered, I will gather you. And then it says, Not only will I gather you physically, but I will take you to me, which is the Torah. Which is Matan Torah. That's really what it is. You need to understand the Torah itself. And just like he did that in Egypt, which is the forerunning model, he will do that now. <clears throat> you see? But the caveat, the condition of that, is the Erev Rav has to be eradicated. Or I should say, they have to be removed from what they do. And we are about to enter that to Kufa. In three days, we will know if the air of Rav is removed. Because that's the issue here. The issue is not the Israeli elections. It's none of that. The issue is, is a time to remove the influence of people who have nothing to do with furthering God's Torah. Nothing. Yeah, they'll, they'll say, okay, I agree, but that's only to allow them to rule in a coalition and so on. <clears throat> that is the question. What we're looking at is either the end of the era of Rav or a time of terrible suffering for spirituality. You see? That's what is at issue in this coming election. You see? And of course, we have to hope 
that it will be the end of the Erev Rav. Because you should know one thing, if the Erev Rav is over, they are the major soldiers of the Sutton. That's his guys. He's, he, the Sutton uses them to destroy the Torah of, the, of, of God and to destroy the religion of Klai Israel, right? Uh, if he loses the Erev Rav, he's done. He's finished. That means he has no longer any power to stop the redemption. And once the redemption begins, it is unstoppable and it is irrevocable because it is the end. You see? And there's no force in creation that can stop it and say, wait a minute. And there's no force in creation, right, that can reverse it. It's finished. Uh, and that is the issue coming up. And what's interesting, it's not only the issue here in Israel, the same thing in America. Those Democrats, crazy people, I have to say, they want to destroy Trump. And I have mentioned many times what Trump is and who he is and so on, that he's the Edomite, a messianic figure of Edom. All right, this is who he is. And his job is to assist the Jewish people to do the Tikkun, which he has been doing. You see, which is amazing, he doesn't even know who he is. And he's still doing it, right? Jerusalem, capital, right? Embassy move, the Golan, kick the Arabs out of Israel, uh, out of uh, America, right? Defund UNRWA, you see, what he's been doing is beyond belief, uh, and so on. And now we, we're probably going to enter the next stage where all the Jewish settlements will become part of Israel. That's the next thing. You see what God is doing? Slowly he's restoring the Jews. But what is he really doing? He needs to restore the connection that the Jews have to the Torah, to God. Because if not, they cannot in any way, there's no bridge to access what the Mashiach will bring. Uh, see, people have no concept of what the Mashiach does. They think, well, a guy's going to come in riding on his white horse, white donkey, whatever it is, right? And he's going to save everybody. What save everybody? That's not what he does. Of course, that's included. What he does is changes reality. He takes away the fog where everybody sees, right? Besides God, there is nothing else. <clears throat> and he reveals the wisdom of the wisdom that there is nothing but God. We cannot even comprehend what that means. Like it says, Mola Oretz, Right? And the time and the end, right? Molar's Deo, the world will be filled, filled with the knowledge of God. Like the waters covers the seabed. Could you imagine what that is? That even the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu is luft, is air, compared to the Torah of the Mashiach. <clears throat> so that's what we are going to see. Is that God himself is going to come down, so to speak, right? And personally, as a father does to a child, or as the king does to his prince or princess, right? He's going to take the Jews and in some miraculous way bring them back. And we have no way of knowing how that's going to happen, you see. And he's going to bring them back so that they now can have a Kesha, right? A connection with that unbelievable Torah that the Mashiach himself, specifically Mashiach Ben Yosef, will be able to give the Jewish people. That is what's about to happen, you see. And what is happening now is there's an unbelievable fight. If you were in heaven, you would see a match. It's called the greatest, I think there was a match in, uh, in America. You know, they called it the match of the century. With two boxes and so on, you know. 
uh, you know, in, in, I think it was in the Philippines or whatever. Yeah, Muhammad Ali, and who was the other guy? I don't even know, you know. Uh, Frazier? Yeah, was, was that the match? Yeah, they called it the, the battle of the century, you know. And so, you know, this is the battle of the century. You know what I'm saying? The heir of Rav, or really the Sutton, is desperate because his days are numbered. You see? So the heir of Rav, once they disappear, he's finished. That's it. He's lost his greatest guy. So they're trying to get, he's trying to kill everybody, right? Uh, in the Eretz Israel. The same thing in America. They're trying to impeach Trump. It's insane what's going on there, right? They just don't stop. Because you should know, it's not them. It's the Sutton that has convinced them for his own machinations to destroy Trump. Because Trump is tremendous for Israel. You see. So, it's very important that, you know, what happens and so on. That's the real issue. It is a heavenly issue. And hopefully, of course, that um, the heir of Rav will be terminated, to use that expression. And even in America, the Democrats will be terminated in that sense, you see. And then, if you think Trump has done something for the Jews, you know, you, have, you haven't seen anything of what this guy's going to do. If finally he's released from the clipper called the Congress, you know, from the terrible people who are trying to destroy this man, you see, then he will, he will together, he will ally himself with Eretz Israel, and uh, it, it will just be astounding. And you, and you take a need, you know, in order to pull this off, you need the authority of a prime minister and the authority of a president. Think about that. If you want to do it apiteva, which means in a natural way, you know, even though it's a miracle, but it'll be a miracle disguised as a natural way, you need the, the assistance and the authority of a president and a prime minister. You see? And that's basically uh, that they will, they will succeed and so on. So that's really, in, in many ways, what it's all about. You see? Uh, we're hoping that the heir of Rav will fall and it has to be. There is no other way to access the Mashiach. You know, this man is coming down, okay, and he's going to make available chokhmah, of which we cannot even believe happened. It'll be a greater revelation than some guy, you know, you sit down with this guy in New Guinea, you know, who doesn't even understand the language, and start telling him Einstein's theory of relativity, you know, with all the mathematics, and so on, you know, which is ridiculous, right? That has to happen now. And the beauty of it is that God is not going to give this assignment to anybody else. He's going to do it himself. Why? Because God loves the Jews. And all what we see, as I said in my Tisha B'Avshir, that all the suffering in the Golas is nothing more than the medicine that we needed in order to be redeemed. That's really what it is. You know, if you want to check out the previous Shir, the Tisha B'Av and the Consolation Shir, that's really what it is. <clears throat> you see, and it says, God, God himself consoles the Jewish people. Nobody else can. I will console you. There is nobody that can console the Jews. You see. And therefore, the beauty of it is that it's going to be a personal uh, uh, mission that God will undertake. Just like he did in Egypt. And that's the key. Whatever he did in Egypt will be replicated today. Same idea. And God took him out as we read in the Agoda, right? I and no Malach. I, you know, sorrow and so on, right? God himself will take, it, take them out, right? And 
He will lift them up to be ready for Matan Torah, which is obviously what what connection could these guys have, the Jewish people, with Matan Torah? You see, it's ridiculous. What was revealed in Matan Torah, we don't even know. Because the Luchas Rishonis was the Messianic light, so we don't even know. So he's going to do it again, in order that the Jewish people should have access to this Messianic light. Because at that point in time, in Egypt, Moshe Rabbeinu was the Mashiach ben Yosef. So how can a Mashiach ben Yosef relate to the Jewish people if they are not prepared? The Jewish people must be prepared and must be elevated in order to begin the process of redemption. And it's going to happen. And hopefully it's going to happen in three days. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? <coughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I love these titles. The deal of the century, the secret of the universe. You know, it's like these titles, you know. <clears throat> I would imagine what probably could happen is this. Abbas is not going to buy into it. Forget about it. Right? For many reasons. Because theologically he can't. Second, he will be killed if he ever does. Hamas will kill him. He can't buy, in, you know, <clears throat> he can't buy into it and so on, you know. So he's going to reject the whole thing. <coughs> so Trump, hopefully what he's going to say is, listen, I'm providing you the only realistic way that there should be peace. You don't want it. So he's going to turn to whoever the prime minister is, right? It's okay. So forget about everything. Just go ahead and do what you have to do. Annex the whole, annex the whole shtachim, territories, and that's it. It's over with. You know, if they don't accept this deal, which in a certain sense will, will, will in a certain sense uh, is uh, fair to them, whatever that means in terms of economics, he wants to give them 50 billion dollars, whatever and so on, you know, and they reject that, that, you see, then he realizes finally that these people are unreasonable, they're not interested in any kind of peace agreement, and therefore enough is enough, do it. And that's really what he's been doing. The Golan, forget about it. Syria can no longer say, it's us. Israel would say, hey, the Golan is ours. We have recognition from the greatest power on earth, which is the United States. And I believe that the whole business of the um, peace deal is really that the Jews can now annex the whole Eretz Israel. Yeah. When you say <coughs> That by doing Torah, we can say Keter. Keter, yes. Keser. What? When you say access, what do you mean? When you say what? To access, access. yes. Is that like, we, we, oh, what do you mean exactly? What do you mean to access? No, I understand the English. But yes. Uh, you get filled up with more inspiration, with more... <coughs> I mean, what does it mean to you personally? <clears throat> yes. Well, <clears throat> the, what it really means is that at the time that the, uh, those forces will unleash their energy to transform the physical universe into a spiritual, right? Then there's a part that you contributed to and that will completely change your assignment area and that will change you as a person. That's when it really takes place, you see? In other words, it doesn't take place now because of the sin of Odom Marishan. Uh -huh. 
it takes place later. It's like a bank account where you put money into a bank account, right? And later on you could draw it. But right now you can't. You see, that's really what it is. What you're doing is taking the energy of Kesser and putting it into your bank account. But you can't take it out. You can't withdraw it yet. Because the process where the spheres will retransform creation has not begun yet. But when it begins, it will happen and your being will change. You will change into an incredible spiritual entity. You see? What? You got to speak loud. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not getting it. I'm not hearing you. You want to stand up and speak loud? What? Is the safest place for Jewish people to be Eretz Israel? Yes. Nothing will happen to you in Eretz Israel. Who's what? Who's the biggest enemy? Is it Russia or... Who's the biggest enemy of who? The Jewish people? You know, it's funny. The biggest enemy of the Jewish people is ignorance. That's what it is. It's ignorance. That people don't know anything. But if you mean a physical, and if you mean an individual, obviously, uh, the greatest enemy of the Jewish people, I mean today, right, uh, is, uh, well, Iran, it, but the truth is it's all the goyim in that sense, you know, it's Iran, it's the UN, you know with this BDS business, it's Iran, it's the UN, it's all the anti-Semitism that is cropping up all over the place, right? They're all enemies of the Jew, so, you know, is A big worse than B? You know what I'm saying? You, you would measure it by who, can, who will do more harm, but in the end, really? They all hate the Jews. You know, I mean, is an enemy who hates you who's got a machine gun, right? Or the enemy who hates you who's got a slingshot, which is worse? In a certain sense, the guy with the machine gun. But the truth is, they're all the same enemy. They all bear the same hatred of the Jew, you see. That's, so it's relative, you know. Obviously, the one who can do the greatest harm to the Jew, we would consider that the greatest enemy. But really, Esav Sene Yaakov, the bad part of Esav, hates Yaakov. So we're witnessing, you know, the right, tremendous rise of anti-Semitism, which makes sense because we know in the end there's a war of Goig and Mogoig, right? And Goig from the land of Mogoig wars with the, uh, the Jewish people and the Mashiach ben Yosef. That's anti-Semitism. What you're watching is the rise of the ultimate end. And the end is anti-Semitism. You remember Parai? Parai was destroyed and all of a sudden he came back, right? To destroy the Jews a second time. Then God destroyed them all. Because in the end, it is the last uh, hurrah, literally, hurrah of evil. Right? That's what it is. It's the last... Uh, attempt of evil to dominate because they know they're losing you see <clears throat> it's just that it's tragic because they have no idea uh, of the judgment that will come to them because of their hatred of the Jewish people they have no idea the time will come when every anti-Semite once it's revealed the status of the Jewish people every one of them are going to come begging for a Jew to save him in judgment. It's like, please.
please be a character witness for me because I'm being judged by God and they're going to throw the book at me which means annihilation they don't, they don't realize that <clears throat> you know uh, and in many ways that is enormously tragic you know wait anybody else? yeah is um, listening to rabbis like yourself also part of Torah learning? yes definitely sure in fact what I try to do is to machazek to strengthen your emunah and bitochen sure that's really what it is you know to strengthen the belief of the Jewish people you know <clears throat> you know you know it's interesting I, I believe in the end of time when the Mashiach comes do you know what the nations of the world are going to say you know what they're going to say it's an interesting conversation I'll tell you what they're going to say they're going to say okay God you brought the Messiah it's over for us and that's it you know but let me ask something they're going to say this to God why didn't you warn us why didn't you warn us okay you don't have to warn us because you've been saying this for thousands of years you know oh, come on Yosha why didn't you warn us something tell us what's about because the entry of the Mashiach is the end of time we're not looking here at a, a new phase of human development we're looking at the end of time of Ilum Hazer so they're going to say to God why didn't you warn us interesting comment and they can't say that you know because if he would have warned us maybe we would have done tshuva because if we realize that the end is coming maybe we would have repented you see so what's God going to answer? I give you the sukkah. Yeah. No, that's different. That's a gemun of That's different, you know. No, <clears throat> that's another. That's a different kind of gemara where they're going to want reward because uh, they're going to say, "Well, we helped the Jews." I'm not talking about that. But I'm just talking about they're going to say to God, "Why didn't you warn us?" And I believe God is going to say, "But I did warn you. I sent people, you know." I mean, first of all, you look at human events, you could see that the Jews are coming back. You look at the events of what's happening. All of a sudden, the Jewish people are returning? I mean, what nation in 2,000 years of exile ever returned to their country? Number one. Number two, what nation, right, in 2,000 years of exile are still the Jewish people? They should have assimilated years ago. What nation has the original language, Hebrew, back. Uh, these people are not normal, we see that. And uh, not only that, everybody knows there's something special about the Jews. One third of all Nobel laureates are Jews. Yet Jews constitute less than one quarter of one percent of the world's population. So how can they be one quarter, uh, one, one third of Nobel laureates are Jews? It's like, it doesn't make sense. Everybody knows there's something different about the Jews. Isn't that a warning? Doesn't that say to people, be careful what you do to a Jew and what you say? <coughs> and the fact that Israel is rising amongst the nations, which really never happened before, right? All of a sudden, Asia, Africa, many countries in Europe, all of a sudden they want to do business with Israel, right? This never happened before. Israel was a despised nation 50 years ago. And now, 
Israel has become a world leader in many fields. How did that happen? You know, we're talking about cybersecurity, medicine, water conservation, you know, the, and so on. Doesn't that say something? How can a nation that was cursed by uh, what the Christians consider, well, they were cursed. Why are they rising? You see, isn't that a messianic uh, event? That the Jews are rising? What about all the people coming back? You know, Russian Jews, uh, Jews from the uh, Middle East. What about that? Doesn't that say something? There is a great deal of warning, but nobody's reading the message. So God is going to say, hey, you know, if you would have just opened your mind and stopped the hatred business, you could have seen this also. You see? <clears throat> Look, in a certain sense, one of the reasons why I bothered saying all this stuff, all the videos of the current events, part of the warning. Because what I've tried to do is provide a framework messianically of what's happening. You know what I'm saying? So, if somebody watches all those videos, he could say to himself, Wow, you know, I don't agree, but it sure makes a lot of sense. Because internally consistent, that's what they are. So in a certain sense, I would love to say that I've contributed to the warning. And maybe I have. You see? Uh, so therefore, there is warning. But people don't want to look at it. They're so busy hating the Jews, you know. So there, there you are. But I'm telling you, in the end of time, they're going to say, well, why don't we also get reward? Because we help the Jews. We build bridges. That's the Gemara of Adesara. You know, and God will say, what are you talking about? <coughs> Whatever you did, you did for yourself and so on. <coughs> but what I'm saying is they're going to say something else. Why didn't you give us a warning? Why? Because God always warns before there's a cataclysm. Think about it. Paroi. He warned Paroi. Noach spent 125, 120 years building the ark. Why? Doesn't take 120 years to build an ark, right? To warn the people about a flood, right? And so on. Yoyna, remember the Yoyna Ninveh? He was sent to warn them. So the, that's why the Goyim are going to say, well, why don't you warn us? You, you warned other people, you see? So God is saying, but I did warn you. Just look at the events, you see? And watch Kesson's video. <laughs> what can I say, you know? Yeah. One question about the framework you've been drawing, the current events, you traced all the meanings of Ishmael, <clears throat> yeah. and, and Esau. Yeah, everybody, yeah. What about China? Well, question really, who is China? China's Yefes, you know? Uh, so, I mean, Yefes is Yefes, you know, there are, um, uh, there are many countries that are Yefes and they have their own individual history, you know what I'm saying? I mean, right now there's a tremendous battle between Edoim, right, and Yefes, which is interesting, you know, and so on, you know? Look, China is basically communism, and communism is Esau, is Edoim, the bad part of Edoim. That's what communism is. Even in China? China, yeah. China is really Edoim, you know. I mean, they come, you know, from, uh, but China, is the, the, the uh, theology, or not the theology, it's the wrong, wrong word, you know. Uh, the ideology of China is really Edoim, communism. Communism is a atheistic belief, 
You know, and not only that, they seek world dominion. You know, I mean, China's got stuff planned which is ridiculous. You know, in terms of how to control 1.4 billion people. You know, that's that's Edom, that's communism. You know, like the Russia used to be that, and so on. So listen, it's part of it's part of the evil part of Edom. You see, which I mentioned is that's the battle between Trump and the establishment in the United States. Now, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. I took a quick question. Number one, um, in ways of learning Torah, uh, listening to Shirim with uh, headphones. Torah. Now, if you wear those headphones all night long, <laughs> and then you wake yourself Jews. up because you're, you're, you're asking a question and, and, you're, and you're doing that's, that, that, that you know, it's almost like your subconscious is learning Torah. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I know it's far out, but... Well, here's the problem. If you learn Torah with uh, with, uh, headphones and you're not conscious, then God will say, okay, I will give you reward, which is also unconscious. (laughs) The way you earned it is the way you're going to get it. You won't be conscious of the reward. Second question, question. Yeah. You said there was no free lunch, but isn't uh, on Pesach night when you lean left and eat Bianchi Komen for those for those few moments or until or for those couple of hours and until nets from the game, uh, isn't that considered a free, lo- free lunch? I don't know why is it a free lunch. But remember, it comes at the end of the Seder. You just did a whole Seder, didn't you? Isn't that work? Wasn't that doing a mitzvah? So why is the Afikoyman free lunch? 49 days is is work. No, the work, but no, you're talking about now, right? You just went through a whole Seder, right? You ate the matzah, you drank the four cups, you did the mara, right? You did the mitzvahs. That's why you get the Afikoyman. <laughs> There's no free lunch. Yeah, go ahead. Hi. You got to speak loud. Okay. It wasn't exactly a question, but I'm on the topic. What was that? The messianic age. Yeah. So that. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not hearing you. What'd you say? The messianic age is what? It leads through peace. It leads through peace. Through, through, through peace. It leads through. Well, peace will enter through the messianic age. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that has that has a different effect on the people that you're referring to who are asking these questions. When you're talking <coughs> about people who aren't Jewish, and I think. Whatever. But it has a different effect on, on that. Because peace, it takes care of all of those concerns. Do you know what peace really is? I don't know if I'm addressing your question, but do you know what peace is? Peace is the ability to completely operate in your nature without any hindrance. That's what peace is, right? And that's why peace is called shalom from the word shlemus, 
perfection. In other words, when, in, when something can operate exactly the way it's built, right, that's called peace. It's when it's interrupted, right, then that is not peace. See, the state that man should be in is complete brotherhood. That's peace. Now, I don't know if I'm answering your... Yes. Oh yeah, sure. Yes. So are you making a statement or asking a question? Okay, you're just making a statement. Thank you. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Thanks. Okay? Oh. Anybody else? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I just wondered, um, with the election, is there a possibility that the left gets in power or has a power sharing arrangement with the Tanayahu? <coughs> That's what they're all talking about. How is that going to connect up with Mashiach? Well, that, 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 no, no, that's the issue. The issue is not the elections. The issue is what's happening in heaven. What is the decision that the Besden, which is the adjudicating instrument, what is their decision? Does the era of Rav end their dominance? And therefore, that is the beginning of the messianic era. That's the beginning of it, where God now has to bring the Jews back. Or, for whatever reason, Maybe the Jews don't deserve it, or they still have to uh, atone, whatever. Then the Erev Rav will continue and subjugate them to a lot of Yisurim. You see, that, that exactly is the issue. It has to be decided in heaven, not here. Everybody here is just a bunch of puppets, right? They just go through the motions of what is decided in heaven, you see? And that is the issue. <clears throat> you see, obviously we're all hoping, right? is that the elections will begin the messianic process. That's what we're hoping. And that is that the power of the heir of Rav, you see, remember the heir of Rav is not just people who destroy religion, right? But they also prevent religion from growing. That's also an heir of Rav. And as long as the heir of Rav is, dominates, as long as this government dominates, right? It's not only how good they are for Israel itself, which is highly debatable, but anyway, uh, this is the Erev Rav. The Jews will never do tshuva. The Jews will never come back to God as long as you have an Erev Rav government. You see? This is the problem. So that is decided in heaven. What will happen? You see? And I'm hoping, obviously, that the Shlita, the domination, dominion, the hegemonic dominion of the Erev Rav, will terminate. But the repercussions of that is awesome. Because if that happens, then the Sutton lost. Which means not only did he lose in Israel, he lost in America. And then something will happen to Congress, the Democrats, all those guys, the leftists, the progressives, the liberals, that are destroying the moral fabric of the United States. You see? Because America is really a great country. 
what, what these people are doing to America is horrendous. Uh, you know, and they will all be judged. They have no idea when the judgment day comes of what's going to happen to them. It doesn't make a difference who they are. I don't care if they're the senators, how, congressmen, it doesn't make a difference. All of them will be judged. In fact, it's better not to be in Senate or the Congress because then since you could have changed the vote, you are held guilty or culpable, you know. So if they were smart, they would quit the Congress. You see, especially with the Congress, you know, the, not the Congress, but the House, which is gung-ho to destroy Trump. When Trump, you know, he's doing great for America, you know. <clears throat> See, what America fails to realize is a president has two concepts. One, is he competent to rule, to govern? Number two, does he look presidential? That's a character study. Okay, so maybe you hold that Trump is not presidential in terms of his character. Fine, you're entitled to your opinion. But how could you disagree that this man is competent? This man is incredible in terms of what he's done for the United States. I mean, it's all historic lows in terms of unemployment, regulations, they're all gone. It's incredible what he's doing, you see? So that's the mistake they make because they're foolish people. Look at the essential requirement. The essential requirement of a president is to be competent to govern for the benefit of the people. Okay, so you don't like the way he talks or he tweets or whatever he does. Fine, you have your... You, you, you have a right to decide. But as long as he governs with competence, right? And he's bringing phenomenal prosperity and all that. Hey, what are you, crazy? Of course you keep him up there. You know? They're more important in terms of, you know, what he says and how he dresses or whatever. You know, what a mistake people are making. You see? Because the, all the other presidents, you know, especially Obama, right? He looked great. He spoke great. He's a terrible president. So which one would you rather have? See, where's the wisdom of people in America? That is the question. Not much. Okay, anybody else? Yeah. Also, no, go ahead. Is, anybody here? Go ahead. Yeah. Um, <coughs> I get confused between the roles of Moshe Ben Yosef and Moshe Ben Dov. Okay, Ben Yosef, the primary function of this man, right, is to destroy evil. You see, there's two problems with this world. One is that there's evil, right? The second problem is there's not much holiness. That's two different problems. Because even if you destroy evil, that doesn't mean there's going to be holiness, Kedusha. You see? So Mashiach ben Yosef, his major mission is to destroy evil. You see? Ben David's issue is to bring in holiness. That's the two different jobs. Those two jobs are the really the redemption itself. Well, they're both messiahs, but the one who will be king will be David. Oh, Yes, yeah. But they're both messiahs. It's very important to keep in mind. As it says in the Novik, they will be as one in your hand. Means both are responsible to elevate the Jewish people. You see, one in terms of the Chokhmah, Mashiach ben Yosef is the Torah person, and Mashiach ben David is the executive branch, if you want to look at it that way. He will rule the Jewish people, you see? But the teacher of the Jewish people is ben Yosef, and the executive of the Jewish people is ben David. You see? 
Wow. Anybody else? Yeah. One question and that's it. Yeah. Fire. Not literally, but... Okay. <laughs> when we say <clears throat> that the, the tree would clap their hands, does it mean that... Well, we what? In, in the KD, I'm sorry, English is not my mother. That's okay. In the KD, it says yeah. the trees would clap their hands and... Yes. Okay. Is that the form of what it will be in the world to come? Yes. No. That will be in the Messianic era. Okay, so like the nephesh which is in the trees is going to be revealed? Yes. <coughs> clearly? Yes, two things I, yeah, I, I, yeah. And then in the world to come, will they exist at all? What? Trees and, oh, they'll be transformed <coughs> into... Yeah, we don't know what the nature of reality is. There are two things I want to tell you, which I'm going to end with those two things, okay? Okay? One, I said this before, but it, it, it's a great way of understanding, you know? There was a, uh, a, uh, a pinch uh, pitcher. His name was Rivera, Mariano Rivera. Okay, he was retiring. I, and you know, so I once was sitting in a car, turned on the radio, and all of a sudden I hear he's retiring. I said this before, right? But it's Kedai. <clears throat> it's worthwhile to listen. He was, uh, he was in a stadium and there were thousands and thousands of people honoring him because he was going to retire, right? And you could not believe the roar of these people. You see? Because obviously, it's, I don't know who he is, you know, I don't follow baseball, obviously, but he's obviously, he, he's, a, he's a legend. He obviously must have been an incredible pitcher, right? And they were screaming at the top. It was astounding to listen to that. So I remember I, I heard that, and I said to myself, this is incredible. <clears throat> This guy who was just a pinch uh, pitcher, if this is the roar that this guy gets for the appreciation of what he contributed, whatever and so on, could you imagine at the end of the Tikkun, right, when all of a sudden the Mashiach comes, right, could you imagine the roar, not of man only, but of every Malach, the every entity that has consciousness, is going to roar throughout all the universes. Could you believe what that is? We can't, you know. It's going to be a roar that we will not be able to even comprehend. That is the incredible roar that's going to happen because of the tikkun of the world itself. Everybody, from the smallest beetle <coughs> to the greatest angel are going to be screaming at the top of their lungs. Yay, Jews, you did it. It's a hard run, but you did it. Can you imagine that moment when you as Jewish people, right, are going to stand up and say, wow, it was all worth it. Right? That is what you're going to say. That's number one. Okay? And that's up ahead. Number two, <clears throat> when Rabbanishtam talked to Moshe Rabbeinu, when he told them, go and take my people out, and pastures for Era. The Bershom says, Pokoi I have surely remembered. Now, the expression of Pokoid is a very important expression because the first phase of the redemption is called the Pekido. The Pekido means remembrance, okay? And that is the language of the Mashiach. When the Mashiach comes, he will say, 
Pokoid, God has remembered you that that's how they knew Moshe Rabbeinu was a messianic figure because Serach Bas Osha said if he uses the expression of Pokoid Yivkoid, God has remembered you, he's the Messiah because the Pekido is the first phase of the redemption. It's when the Mashiach is released from his klipa, from his prison. Very important idea because right now he is bound and he's not in prison but he's paralyzed, not literally but figuratively, whatever, which I spoke about. That's called the Pekidah. So, God says to Moshe, you are being released from your Klippa. You are known. You're some shepherd somewhere in Ethiopia, wherever that was, right? Uh, nobody knows who you are. I'm releasing you from your prison. Now go and take my people out. That's the Pekidah. That's literally messianic. The Gematria of Pokoit Pokadati Okay, including the two words, which you're allowed to add, is 780. Right? In less than three weeks, we are going into 5,780. Now, the question is, wait a minute. Every millennium has a 780, right? So besides the fact that this is the last 780, right? This is even better. Because the word pokoid, right? Surely I will remember, is, has a vov in it. But it's missing. You read it, but you don't write it. It's not written there. So because it's not written there, it's not part of the numerical value of 780, right? But you say it. So therefore, above means six. In the sixth millennium, which is 5,780, is the Pekido. And not only that, but this year is Tovshin Pei, which is Tishnas Pekido. Now, wouldn't that be incredible? That Pokrit Pokadati, which God Himself is saying, which is the messianic expression that indicates the Mashiach, Pokrit Pokadati, is exactly equal to the year that He comes, and even the year is called Tiyashnas Pekida. This is the year of the Pekida. Alavai. I want to leave with that remez. Illusion.